Hello and welcome to this first Faber podcast of 2012. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Beijing-based writer James Palmer. James's first book was The Bloody White Baron, an extraordinary life of the Russian nobleman who became last Khan of Mongolia, which was shortlisted for the John Llewellyn Rees Prize. Not long after he got off the plane from China, I spoke to James about his new book, The Death of Mao, which reconstructs the momentous events of 1976, the year in which China not only lost Chairman Mao, the man who had led the country for over three decades, the last of which had witnessed the horrors of the Cultural Revolution, but also suffered one of the most devastating natural disasters in human history, the Tangshan earthquake, which cost half a million lives. In Chinese folklore, James writes in the book, omens attend the passing of an emperor. And so it was to prove with the Tangshan earthquake, the catastrophic sign that an era of madness and brutality was coming to an end. I began by remarking to James that if an earthquake that claimed half a million lives had happened in 1976 in Europe or South America or Japan, it would be forever etched in the collective memory. Not so Tang Shan. Well, the thing was, China was so absolutely sealed at the time. Over the past 30 years, maybe 50, if that, Westerners had ever been to Tang Shan. And then the Chinese government closed off information about the quake Afterwards, no reporters, no Western reporters certainly, were allowed in. It received minimal coverage. There used to be the old newspaper epithet about, you know, one Brit, ten Frenchmen, a uh, hundred Chinese. The concept of China at the time, the, the vision of a land of sort of overflowing with people where life didn't matter, meant that Chinese catastrophes, even if they could be covered, simply didn't get media attention. So the Tangshan earthquake was a, a brief story in 1976 in the Western media that disappeared pretty much without trace very rapidly and made, you know, made no impression on, on ordinary people. But even in, even in China, of course, during the course of the Cultural Revolution, enormous disasters were completely covered up. Tangshan is unusual because it was so big that and it was so big and it came just at the end of the Cultural Revolution. So it's part of Chinese historical memory in a way that other disasters aren't. But for instance, I talk in the book about the collapse of the Banqiao Dam in 1975, where oh, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like 60,000 people drowned or died of starvation. And again, this would be an enormous disaster in any other country. But most people in China don't know about it, have, have no memory about it. It's not that it's censored nowadays. You can go and look up the details, can find out the information, but it's just not part of people's uh, historical memory. And you, um, you quote an Australian cartoon that appeared because the Australian Premier and his wife were in China at the time of this earthquake. It's a flippant, did the earth move for you, darling, kind of cartoon, which is, is, kind of is deeply distasteful and kind of unthinkable, isn't it, if the earthquake had happened somewhere else? Yeah, very much so. And I mean, Chinese just, you know, honestly weren't really seen as people. They were seen as sort of drones, ants. Uh, the language is dehumanizing. And that was the case not only in sort of the popular press, but also, I think, even in academics, left-wing academics who were sympathetic to the Chinese communist cause, portrayed this idea that the Chinese were different, that they 
that the freedoms that mattered in the West didn't matter to them, that they were collectivist. Now, the Chinese are the, to, to stereotype very broadly, the Chinese are about the least collectivist people you can imagine. Fiercely, without the political incentive, fiercely individualistic, competitive, all this kind of thing. And even at the time, I mean, the disasters, the political disasters that are now part of standard Chinese historiography, the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, were the Great Leap Forward was almost unknown or outside China when it was happening, the starvation of 40 million people. Um, I have actually a, a books from by Western scholars from the period talking about how the Chinese peasant has mastered his land for the first time. These just works of wild fantasy. So that was on the left, and then on the right, you know, communist masses, red masses, yellow hordes, all this language that dismissed any concept of the Chinese as individuals, and by not taking them seriously as individuals, dismissed their, their suffering, their death, their pain. So as you, as you alluded to earlier, by 1976, the Cultural Revolution had been underway for a decade. So can you just sketch out what kind of decade that had been for the Chinese people? So the Cultural Revolution started essentially as a campaign to destroy the people who had opposed Mao during the Great Leap Forward, during the starvation period, but also as an attempt to sort of tip the ruling order upside down to create conditions of chaos that Mao saw as, as creating new life, sort of vibrancy. And it coincided with a generation who were who had been brought up on these constant talk of revolution, war, purges, all this kind of thing, but who grew up in a system that was increasingly stagnant, that had massive official corruption, grey bureaucracy, sort of lifelessness. And so what you had first was you had this extraordinary uh, movement of tens of millions of young people, as young as 12, 11 sometimes, typically sort of 13 to 16, 17, across the country in the Red Guard movement. And they just ran riot, and they were allowed to run riot. And so they, they attacked teachers, they burnt down temples. And this was a combination of efforts directed from the center and of spontaneous sort of rage and hatred towards the old. Which, which must have been all the more shocking in a country like China, which normally has reverence for the old. Well, I think that was, that was part of the thing, was it was such a violation of the country's basic cultural values that, you know, in, in, if you think of medieval Europe, when you get things like the bonfire of the vanities uh, under uh, Savonara and the, uh, Florence, you get this complete tipping of the normal order, this, the world turned upside down, and that's really what you had in China. You had a complete reversal of, of the norm. And so you had these wild battles between Red Guard factions, huge scenes of public confession and torture. And then it sort of shifted. Then it became, at the same time, you had all these political factions, these Chinese politics has always been very localized at the same time. So you had local political factions taking advantage of the chaos to move against their enemies. And this mood of paranoia that sort of swept the country, these witch hunts that began where anybody could be singled out. And people then beyond the Red Guards, young people, people in their 20s, 
whose path to promotion, whose path to good jobs was blocked by existing figures, used that to attack them, to overturn them, to suddenly be the leaders. So by, by 1970, you'd had four years of really near, near civil war between different local factions, different groups, all sort of semi-directed from the center, but also these local eruptions of, and it could be a whole range of factors. It could be about jobs, it could be about corruption, it could be about ethnicity, about clashes between the Han Chinese and the minorities. It could be about religion. It could be about Muslim groups or Buddhist factions or the in Tibet, of course, the destruction of Tibetan Buddhism. Very often, it was a vengeance against earlier political violence because China had seen mass political violence too during the Great Leap Forward where maybe as many as two, three million people died by being killed by their fellow Chinese, not by starvation. And so in many village studies, what you find is that the people who, whose families, whose clans had been attacked during the Great Leap Forward took revenge on the people who had come to the top then and who now, because they were on the top, were targets for this, this revolt, this, uh, this rebellion. Then by, by the 1970s, early 1970s, things had sort of calmed down across most of the country. Was, was that due to kind of exhaustion or, or was some kind of order imposed upon it? It was a mixture. It was partially that the new order was established, that the people who had, who had been the rebels were now in charge. So Wang Hongwen, for instance, one of the Gang of Four, who started as a factory guard in Shanghai, who led a, a rebel movement to attack the existing order had become the party boss of Shanghai. It was partially that people were worn out, and it was partially that Mao had sort of pulled back a bit by, for instance, sending the, sending the young people off into the countryside, dispersing that sort of political force, uh, and by others in the centre had used the army, the PLA, to restrain the rebel movements, or, or to outright crush them through actual battles. And so while you had these you had these spots of extreme violence and you had this general mood of sort of nervousness and paranoia and fear across the country that you could be condemned for speaking out of turn, it wasn't as quite as bad as it had been. Then you had a the sudden fall of Lin Biao was enormous, who was he was the second in command of the country. He was the heir apparent to Mao, and suddenly he was a traitor. He was he was God. He was a nun person, and it, it used to be that you had his portrait up by mouths in Chinese homes, and you had to take it down overnight. So this was this enormous disillusionment. This giant, what's sort of going on? So you had then then several years of sort of where it really was a crushing kind of grinding blandness to life, because so much of ordinary life was still destroyed or unacceptable or taboo from you couldn't for instance you couldn't play western instruments you couldn't whereas in shanghai before the cultural revolution you still had radio shows playing western classical music that was all gone violins that used to be made uh, in huge numbers and practiced by chinese kids destroyed so people were practicing the violin in little huts secretly out of hearing uh, all kinds of activities kite flying chess games just not acceptable. So the sort of Taliban-like existence of, of dullness and conformity 
And then by, by 1976, people were just fed up of it. They, they had had enough. A lot of them were people who had been part of that initial wave sort of popular revolt of, we're going to change the order, we're going to make true communism. And they were disillusioned, they were angry, and they, there was no appetite for things staying as they were. Now, before we come on to the, the, the looming crisis of succession, tell me what kind of state Mao was in by early 1976? Well, he was, he was pretty much dead on his feet, really. I mean, he was still mentally lucid most of the time, but his speech was becoming increasingly slurred. So he had to go through his personal translator, well, not his personal nurse, who also effectively acted as a translator because she was the only one who could reliably understand what he said. Mao always had quite a heavy Hunan accent, which I guess in English, a little bit like West Country. So the sort of peasant speech and combined that with sort of stuttering and slurring. A lot of the time people just couldn't understand what he was saying. Because he was suffering from a variant of motor neuron disease. Yes, from, from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. So he was shaking. He had numerous other health problems. He, was, he had wounds from fighting the Japanese and the, the nationalists. He was in his 80s in general. So he was completely, he was worn out. Heart attacks, all kinds of things. So what was his grip on power like at this stage? It, well, it was still absolute. That's the extraordinary thing. Because nobody could risk moving against him. Even in this sort of incapacitated state, one word from him, one, one gesture could still destroy people. And so everybody was hanging on to him. And this part of the country's paralysis in the 70s, the mid-70s, was because of Mao's own paralysis. Because there was, he didn't have the, the energy to push anything new. And so the whole country was almost... The old regime was also on its deathbed waiting to, to expire. And so who is in the wings eyeing up the, the position, the, the, the imminent vacancy? The obvious candidate was a man called, who we talked about earlier, Wang Hongwen, who was this very charismatic um, sort of political bruiser come up through the Shanghai, uh, the, the January storm in 1967 when Shanghai was seized by civ- sort of civil warfare and he ended up, him and his, his little faction, ended up on top. And he had been sort of groomed by Mao after Lin Biao fell. Behind him was uh, Jiang Qing, Mao's wife, Madame Mao. And he was very much under her spell. She was this very disliked figure within the party who was able to, to use her closeness to Mao to destroy, again, people who, who she saw as enemies. And she was the one constantly pushing in the later years for the continuation of the Cultural Revolution, for more revolt, more attacks, no opening, no, no, no surrender. This ideal of sort of revolutionary purity that could be fulfilled only by death. So Wang was the, the obvious sort of possible successors first, and that would have implied Jiang Qing being in, in power behind him. Had two other, they had two other allies, the other members of the Gang of Four, but who also had high-level political roles. Now, the, the other contender, the, the person who people saw as the next potential leader, was Deng Xiaoping, who had been uh, in this 
amazing sort of rise and fall, rise, fall, rise. He had been purged at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, spent years in, in internal exile, been put back into power by Mao, begun economic changes that uh, sort of began to create green shoots in the economy. And he was very closely associated with Zhou Enlai, who was a hugely respected, older than Mao, hugely respected figure within the country, within the Communist Party. And Deng was sort of seen as his protege. And then you had, um, you had a third figure, Hua Guofang, who was this very sort of, not really bland, but a sort of a non-entity. People didn't take him seriously. He was very sort of personable. He got on with people. And he sort of seems to have come up through the ranks because he didn't piss anybody off too badly. And everybody sort of saw him as being on their side or as being potentially on their side. So that, that was the kind of lineup as Mao was, as Mao was dying, was Wang Hongwen sort of representing the far left, Deng uh, representing the sort of reformist, what were called the, the rightists within, within China and Hua, who didn't really represent anything, who was just this sort of John Major type figure, you know, acceptable to all parties. And they were jostling for position, but none of them were willing to make any moves before Mao died, because making those moves would have exposed them to a degree that their enemies could have used against them. And that's, that's probably why Lin Biao fell in the first place, in the, the previous second-in-command, because he was trying to position himself for the leadership that made him a threat to Mao, and Mao moved to have him crushed. He perhaps moved in response to trying to overthrow Mao, it's all very unclear. But it was all, it was just too risky to do anything while Mao was still in the game. So how does a natural disaster become implicated in the outcome of these power plays that are going on? Two things. Firstly, the, the Chinese have always had this idea of the mandate of heaven, the idea that natural disasters show that a dynasty's time has ended. Now, this sounds like superstition, but when you look at it, it's not, because natural disasters are constant, but there's nothing... They're not natural. Every natural disaster is shaped by the society it takes place in, by the ability of the authorities to respond to a managed disaster. So what caused people to judge that a dynasty had lost the mandate of heaven wasn't that a disaster happened. It was that the authorities failed to respond to the disaster, that they failed to save people, to relieve people, to provide aid. So when this earthquake struck, there was very much a sense that this showed that something was, something was coming to a close, that something was, was ending. And the second thing was that the Gang of Four, the, um, the faction led by Wang Hongwen and Jiang Qing, were wildly out of touch with the ordinary Chinese people. They had no concept that people were fed up with the kind of politics they represented. And the earthquake made that gap very clear because while Hua, Hua Guofang and, uh, was going down to the earthquake zone, was being pictured with survivors, was portraying himself as somebody who cared about the public, the Gang of Four was, it was in Beijing making not the slightest effort for earthquake relief 
and writing stories, because they controlled the media, they always had a very firm grip on, on the media, putting stories in the media that were so inhumane and callous in terms of their relationship with the ordinary victims that portrayed the earthquake as just another opportunity for Maoist triumph, that it became obvious, it became even more obvious that they had no idea what people wanted, what people thought. Now, we've, we've talked a lot about the high politics. Tell me a bit about Tang Shan. What kind of place is it and what kind of stories did you uncover there? Well, Tang Shan's it's a very ordinary town. It's a, a big industrial centre, lots of mines, and it's a sort of, um, you know, sort of Sheffield, Birmingham, something like that. Straightforward people. It was a, it was a slight backwater, so there had been a, a political purge there, uh, torture, people being accused of being traitors, all kinds of things, and thousands of people had suffered. But it wasn't on the scale that of the things that had happened in some other Chinese cities. It was, it was damaged by the Cultural Revolution, but it wasn't. It didn't have the heart sort of torn out of it. That was partially because it was a working city. It was very much a city about getting the coal dug, getting the steel made. Yes, there's, there's something you quote about the people of Tangshan saying that although they represent only a thousandth of the population of China, they actually account for a hundredth of uh, the, the coal output. Yes. Yeah, so there was this idea that you know one. Tangshanese was worth sort of 10 other workers. And that was really true at the time because the, the vast majority of Chinese were working in the fields. And not only working in the fields, but working in a, an agricultural sector that while it had picked up because of the Green Revolution, because of uh, hybrid rice and other innovations, was still hugely backward, was still bound into this commune model that was an economic disaster. Whereas the Tangshanese were industrialized they were making stuff now this was still they were still making stuff by backwards methods and um, sort of 1950s technology soviet technology but they were much more economically important than the average chinese and they were they were very proud of that and ordinary life there was just it was it was dull you you got up you went to you went to work you had a political rally you came home if you got to watch a movie that was the highlight of your month the people I talked to, they often compared it to life in North Korea nowadays. They said living in North Korea now is like what living in, in Tangshan was like then. So it was this sort of routine in which politics was one of the few things that provided sort of some kind of excitement some of the time. But again, a lot of things, a lot of ornate entertainments, so that, you know, cards, mahjong, painting, all these kind of things were often politically unacceptable or risky. And so this very, yeah, regimented, dull life where people found, you know, people found what enjoyment and pleasure within their families and, you know, with their friends and so on, but still this very limited, very limited life. And one that they were, one that people knew was limited and they were trying, particularly at that time, that they were trying to sort of break free of. The earthquake struck in the middle of the night on the 28th of July, and those 23 seconds have a fair claim to be the most 20, destructive 23 seconds in, in recorded history, haven't they? Yes, they, the, the city was devastated, annihilated. Um, if you look at pictures, you see one building out of a thousand left standing. It looks like an atomic bomb has been dropped on it. And the thing was, the epicenter of the earthquake was directly below the city, so the absolute worst, the 
There's two scales you use for earthquakes, the, the Richter scale and the Macaulay scale. And the Macaulay scale measures the intensity of the damage on the ground. And in the center of Tangshan, it was intensity 12. It was the highest possible level of damage. So just everything was wiped out. But not only Tangshan, but villages for dozens of miles around were also annihilated. It, could, it depended entirely on where you were. So you had, you had cases where one village was untouched, where tiles came off the roof, and another village where not a building was left standing and half of the people died. And because people were indoors, because it was the dead of night, no warning, and so quick, so, so incredibly quick, you had to be fantastically fast or lucky to get out. The speed, not just the, not just the scale of the destruction, but the speed with which it happened, the time at which it happened, made it one of the deadliest events in human history. And you say, James, that Tang Shan saved itself. Does, does that mean that the response from the center, therefore, was inadequate or, or tardy? When I say Tang Shan saved itself, I mean the vast majority of the rescue efforts were done within the first sort of six hours by ordinary people who got together, who dug each other out of the rubble, and who showed amazing courage, uh, fortitude in doing so, who put, who, and at risk of their own lives, at, at a time when aftershocks were still causing buildings to collapse, would go into teams and just dig out people who they didn't even, who they didn't know, who were just, just whoever they could find. The response from the center was very, was, I would say it was as good as it could be, which wasn't very good at all. The whole way the political system was structured meant that Tangshan was never going to receive the help it needed. Because f first of all, they just didn't have the technology. The country was so backward. There were no earthquake rescue teams. They didn't have anything to use. And so you just had the army sort of turning up and digging people out by hand. And while that helped, because at least they were young and fit, all it was was more manpower. Rescue equipment didn't arrive for, I think, 10 days after the quake. And because of the country, because of the political paranoia, they flatly turned down foreign aid. Other countries, Japan, America, offered to send help, and it was refused straight out. Because accepting it would have meant leaving yourself politically vulnerable. It was just unacceptable. China was China. Couldn't take anything from foreigners. And because Tangshan was so economically important, and because the whole focus of the communist regime was on the cities, the countryside got no help whatsoever. So if you go into the center of Tangshan, they remember the PLA, they remember the food aid given. But if you go even a little bit outside, they saw nothing, no food, no aid. They were left, they were entirely abandoned. They got no help for months or, or, or sometimes just forever afterwards. And when food aid did come, it was distributed by politics. Particularly, not so much in Tangshan itself, but in the villages, whatever local thug controlled the village uh, and who had decided who was politically acceptable and who wasn't, doled out the food. And so if you were a connected family, if you were politically acceptable, you got the rations. And if you weren't, you didn't. got nothing. And this was, I mean, this was always the case. It was always the case within the commune system that if you, if you had the right connections, if you had the right politics, you got to eat. And if you didn't, you want starvation rations even in ordinary times. But that became even more acute after the earthquake. And within a few weeks, Mao himself was dead. 
Did the earthquake change what happened afterwards, or did it serve to accentuate the end of an era? I think it marked. I think it marked the end of the era, and it made. I think it also made the Huaguofang and the the sort of moderates who moved against the Gang of Four, because the earthquake showed out how out of touch they were. It made them more confident that they would be able to pull this sort of maneuver off, and it made the country more ready to accept this change. Now, I think it would have happened anyway. I think the、uh, I think the Gang of Four had doomed themselves by their own political blindness and stupidity, but it made everything clearer and more certain. When that final sort of fall came, the Public remembered, I think, that Hua had pitched himself as a man of the people, and he was to continue to do so over the next couple of years, to continue to push the sort of populist image, and that the Gang of Four had been nowhere. And finally, James, when you talk to young people in China today, people who are too young to remember these events, what kind of legacy have they left in in collective memory? Those events of of seventy six. I think the the Tangshan earthquake for young people is framed in the same way as the Sichuan earthquake was. That is, a natural disaster, nothing to do with politics, that resulted in a sort of outpouring of public concern. And for the most part, though, young people don't think about history. They partially because it's not taught or not taught in any interesting way. Partially because it's just not it's not relevant to them. The world they live in has changed. So absolutely, from the world of their parents' generation. Best analogy I can make is、um, if you think of immigrant kids in Britain, if you think of young sort of、uh, Somalis or Bangladeshis, people whose parents grew up in a world of, say, the Somali War or the or the Bangladeshi War of Independence, of horrific atrocities and disaster, famine, starvation, but who then came to Britain, whose kids grew up in a Completely different world in a world in a world technologically, socially, completely, completely changed, and so their parents' history just doesn't matter to them that much. I mean, if you talk to if you if you talk to you know like a a twenty year old kid with Bangladeshi parents today about the Bangladeshi War of Independence, he's not going to be able to tell you much. He might be able to tell you a couple of family stories, but it's not part of his life. And this and it's the same thing in China. The difference is so huge. That it's unless you're an unusually sort of curious person, it's just not relevant. And for older people, the memory of the Cultural Revolution, the scars of the Cultural Revolution, are always there. And in wider Chinese politics, it's always there—that sort of memory of chaos. But also that framing of the Cultural Revolution is that's when everything bad happened, which allows you to ignore all the things that happened before that. So, it, so the memory. The, that historical memory haunts Chinese society as a whole, but it doesn't affect, I think, the, the majority of young people. It's just not, just not important to them. James Palmer, the death of Mao is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast. But there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk/podcast. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up for the regular programs by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, when I'll be talking to Philip Alterman about his history of Anglo-German encounters, keeping up with the Germans, 
Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.